Turn with me, please, to uh, in your Bibles to our sermon text. It is 1 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. 1 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. Listen reverently and carefully to it as I read it to you. Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice and all that you have said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. And now, here is the king walking before you. But I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am. Bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron, and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now, Take your stand, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hatsur, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve thee. Then the Lord sent Jerubal and Bedan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall rule over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, 
Then both you and the king who, who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. And if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you, as it was against your fathers. Even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And you must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver, because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king shall be swept away. Amen. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Join with me in prayer. O Lord, we thank you for being a speaking God, a God who has not hidden yourself from mankind and particularly from us, your people. We thank you that more more than not being a hidden God, you are a God who um, wishes to be close to us and wishes to have intimacy with us, your people. And you indeed have that intimacy when we uh, come before you and when we seek your face. Um, as we are doing now. Lord, we ask that you would be with us in a way that would profit us and glorify you in this time of uh, preaching. Would you please grant me words that I uh, should say? Would you please instruct through the words that I say and also through the text that we'll be looking at? And would you please 
um, use this time to further your redemptive purposes in our lives and in this world of ours. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, um, I don't know if you've ever heard this idea before, but you'll, adults will talk about uh, somebody wearing two hats. Um, maybe you've heard that terminology, maybe you haven't. Uh, but what it means is, if, some, if you hear somebody say that person wears two hats, it means he, he has different, two different roles that he plays. Uh, in his, perhaps at his job, or perhaps in his family, or uh, perhaps in some other uh, part of his life, he plays two different roles. So, for example, I, I have the role uh, of being a father, and also I have the role of being a minister of the gospel. Um, I have some other roles, too, as most of us do. But the point is, uh, when a person has more than one more more than one calling in life, he is said to have uh, more than one hat that he wears or she wears. I bring that up because Samuel, the prophet, uh, who is uh, in the forefront of this passage, at this particular in, in this particular incident that I just read to you from Samuel chapter twelve, is wearing more than one hat. He's wearing two hats. And I'm going to tell you in a moment what they are. They constitute the two points of the sermon, in effect. So, that's coming in just a minute. Uh, and uh, so listen for that, those two hats that uh, uh, Samuel is wearing in this text. Um, but first I want to get to a little background here, just to before I get to the points that I'm going to uh, focus on, spend the rest of our time on. So, this is the transition period, this period of time um, about which uh, is being written. It's a transition period between the time of the judges and the time of the uh, Davidic monarchy. Well, actually the monarchy, I should say, uh, because uh, uh, it starts with Saul before it gets to David. But it's, the tra- it's in this transition period. And Israel is in the midst of a leadership crisis. Samuel, Israel's current judge, uh, is, the, is old, and his two sons, whom he has appointed to replace him, uh, are evil and corrupt men, as it turns out. Uh, it's interesting, a godly man uh, has children who are ungodly. It happens, sad to say. It's not the rule, I don't think, but it's certainly we have no guarantee that our covenant children are uh, going to all uh, become godly servants of the Lord. Wish it were this case, but it is not, and this is clear evidence of that. At any rate, Israel is facing not only a transition period and a leadership crisis, but also external threats to their uh, well-being. The Arameans are to the north of them and are oppressing them. The Ammonites are to the east and are oppressing them. Uh, and it is probably on account of these various troubles that they are facing from without and from within uh, that the people of Israel decide to ask Samuel, the uh, the uh, uh, the judge of the day, to give them a king. Now, the motive behind their request is sinful. It is evil, as uh, I just read, uh, as you saw in a couple of places in verse 19 and elsewhere in the text uh, that we're looking at today. Their motive was evil in asking for a king. And we'll get say more about that in a little bit. But God decides to grant their request, even though it is wrong. Uh, he grants their request. 
um, he informs, uh, or he communicates rather to Samuel, uh, his divine choice, that is Saul, and Samuel uh, sets out to anoint Saul. Uh, and uh, after informing the people of God's choice, Samuel gathers all of Israel together at Gilgal to formally install their new king um, by a ceremony. But shortly after they are gathered together, something very strange happens. And it's recorded in this text. And that is, God, through Samuel, his prophet, his mouthpiece, starts speaking to the people of Israel using judicial language. This, uh, and I emphasize it in the way I read it a little while ago, but this take your stand language happens twice in two different places in verse uh, uh, 7 and then again up somewhere else uh, a little bit later in the text. I think verse 16 maybe yet, verse 16. Samuel uses this language and it's judicial language. It's legal um, courtroom language if we can put it that way. And what is actually going on, and the people may not have realized it quite at the beginning of what was going on, but what was actually going on through what God was saying through Samuel was God was putting Israel, the nation, on trial, the Old Testament church, on trial. This was a covenant lawsuit for covenant breaking on the part of a large percentage of the Old Testament Jewish church. This is one of many covenant lawsuits that God would bring against uh, his people uh, down through the following centuries. And um, he puts them on trial again for violating uh, the covenant that he himself had entered into with them at Mount Sinai, which is an administration of the covenant of grace, one of several. So this is a courtroom scene here. And it eventually, sooner or later, dawns on everybody that that's what's going on, perhaps uh, different people at different points in time. But the point is, it's a courtroom scene, and God is the judge. And Israel is the accused, the Old Testament church. And this trial is unusual uh, in more than one way, uh, two ways that I'm going to mention. Uh, first, in every other trial that we encounter uh, in daily life today and in times past, uh, all the participants involved are human beings. Not so here. While the accused are all human beings, men, women, and children of Israel, the judge is clearly not. It is the divine uh, uh, God himself who is uh, the judge pres- presiding here. And the second uh, thing that's unusual about this tri- trial is that unlike other trials with which we're familiar, there's only one attorney present at this trial. Samuel, the prophet. Yes, one attorney, but that one attorney wears two hats on this occasion. And this observation that Samuel is wearing two hats on this occasion is key to the understanding of what's going on in this passage. So that brings me to the two points that I'm uh, going to focus on the remainder of our time. First of all, Samuel, acting as God's representative prosecutes God's case against Israel. But also in this passage, Samuel, acting as Israel's representative, pleads Israel's case before God. Both things are happening uh, here in 1 Samuel 12. So first, Samuel, acting as God's representative, prosecutes God's case against Israel. 
Samuel is, again, acting as God's prosecuting attorney here. He's prosecuting this case on behalf of Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, the covenant-making God. Uh, And Samuel's job is to build God's case against his rebellious people, which he does. But before launching into the actual evidence of Israel's guilt, uh, particularly their desire for a king in the way they desired a king, or for the reasons they desired a king, um, before launching into that evidence, Samuel first needs to, uh, and does, set the stage for the presentation of the uh, incriminating evidence. And so Samuel starts off his uh, his um, monologue by defending God's treatment of Israel prior to this day, in this point in time. And he defends God's treatment in three ways. First, he, de- he defends God's rule over them uh, by defending his, that is to say Samuel's, own integrity as God's prophet. And he does this in verses 1 through 5. I'm not going to bother to read it to you again for the sake of time. But Samuel is the judge whom God himself had appointed and through whom God was ruling over or had been ruling over Israel. This being the case that Samuel was God's appointed representative, uh, that being the case, Samuel's rule, the way Samuel treated the people, reflected on God's rule. And since Samuel was a fair and honest ruler over the people as the human representative of God, Samuel's point is, God is, that reflects on God's fairness and God's honesty in his dealings with you. He has been only kind through you to you by giving you uh, a judge who is imperfectly so, but is honest and fair in his rule over you. Um, Secondly, a second way in which uh, Samuel defends God's uh, honor, if you will, or his treatment of Israel, his rule, is he recounts God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt in verses 6 and 8. <clears throat> Basically, what, uh, <clears throat> what God did, or, yeah, what God did is he saved them, delivered them when they cried out to him on, uh, on, uh, in, in Egypt. And why did he do that? Because they were, uh, such a, uh, faithful, uh, Following people? Of course, that's not the answer. We all know that. Uh, The answer is given in uh, Psalm, recorded in Psalm 105, verses 37 through 42. Uh, Listen as I read that to you quickly. Psalm uh, 105, verse 37 and following. Then he, the Lord, brought them out, meaning out of Egypt, with silver and gold. And among his tribes there was not one who stumbled, Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them, of the Israelites, had fallen upon them, the Egyptians. He, God, spread a cloud for a covering and fire to illumine by night. They asked, and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock and water flowed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy word with Abraham, his servant. I'm not going to read any further because that answers the question. The reason he did all those kind and gracious things for Israel was because of his promise to them, made to Abraham and his descendants, which the Israelites were, biologically. 
and some of them, praise the Lord, spiritually. But that's why God acted towards him and delivered them from uh, Egypt in the Exodus. And the Exodus is, and the reason uh, Samuel's bringing this up, and the reason it's brought up so many times in Old Testament history, is because uh, the Exodus is the quintessential quintessential example uh, and paradigm, if you will, of God's willingness to deliver his people from their bondage, whatever that bondage might be, and of God's power to deliver his people is also displayed preeminently in the exodus uh, from Egypt. So that's the second thing that Samuel does to uh, uh, vindicate God, if you will. And the third thing is he reminds them of God's repeated deliverance of them from other enemies during the time of the judges. This is in verses 9 through 11. They were oppressed by Sisera, the Canaanite, by Eglon, the king of Moab, by the Ammonites, uh, excuse me, by the Midianites and by the uh, Philistines. And in each time, on each occasion, when that happened, God raised up various judges, as we all know, through whom he delivered his covenant people from those enemies. Samuel's point here in these three illustrations is, He's saying, in effect, to Israel, God has greatly blessed you and protected you. So you owe him all the love and obedience that, of which you are capable. That's the point that Samuel is making and that God is making through him. Well, then Samuel goes on to accuse Israel of wrongdoing. How did the Old Testament church that had received all these blessings from God and all this favor and kindness um, through these numerous acts of deliverance, how did they treat this wonderful Savior of theirs? We all know. They demanded that Samuel give them a king to rule over them like the other nations around them had. Verse 12 is where that... Um, Request is um, is said or is stated, restated. Uh, now you, excuse me, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, so he's recalling what happened in the recent past, no, but a king shall rule over us. Before I explain why this request was so sinful, it's important for you to first understand what was not sinful about it, okay? What was not sinful about their request was the request for a king in itself, by itself, I should say. You see, an earthly monarchy over the Old Testament church, far from being contrary to God's will for them, was a fundamental component of God's redemptive plan for them. Abraham was told by God that kings would come forth from him and Sarah. In Genesis 17, we learn that. That promise was repeated to Jacob in Genesis 35. And then prior to Jacob's death, um, he told his sons in Genesis 49, this, he said, the scepter meaning the royal scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, from between Judah's feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. A, uh, probably a cryptic reference to uh, the Messiah, to Jesus. And so 
we have these promises, and then and then that were given to the patriarchs, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 17, long before, well, I should say long before, certainly quite a bit of time before, uh, hundreds of years before uh, this event that occurs in 1 Samuel 12, uh, God says to the Israelites in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 17, starting verse 14, he sets before them there the procedure by which they are to choose a king and also sets forth requirements for Israel's king, how he should act as the king of God, a human king of God's people. So you see, God is perfectly willing to let Israel have an earthly king provided it was on his, that is to say, God's terms. In other words, that they only viewed that human king as a type or a representative of their true king, their heavenly king, that is, of course, Yahweh, and not view the human king as a replacement for Yahweh as their king and deliverer. That's how the human king was to be viewed but that's not how Israel was, what was Israel was requesting or demanding really from Samuel and ultimately from God. They wanted a king like the nations. That's what was wrong with Israel's request. Uh, even they wanted a king who they would look to for their deliverance rather than looking to God who had repeatedly, uh, 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 indicated that he was their king. He was their ultimate king. As verse 12, by the way, uh, even points out there, after, after, the, uh, after the quote from Israel, uh, when, whereas God is, was to be your king. Uh, and God had told them, you are not to be like the nations. You are not to be like the nations. In all the ways that the nations are godless and evil and wicked, you are not to be like them. And here they are wanting to be like them, in, as evidenced by their request. They thought they needed a human king to deliver them from their enemies. And they weren't willing to trust God to deliver them in spite of God's promises and his perfect track record. Uh, And this is something that they were guilty of. And folks, this is something that we are, many of us anyway, probably all of us at different times, are guilty of ourselves. Of putting our trust in something or someone other than the Lord to deliver us from whatever uh, we wish to be delivered from, from our trials, um, from the inconveniences that uh, perhaps right now that are afflicting you, uh, financial, um, work-related, health-wise, because of the uh, pandemic and its effects upon us and our country. Um, Perhaps you are uh, looking to... um, something or someone other than the Lord to deliver you from the effects of this. It's sin. It's sin to trust your financial advisor for your future. It's sin to trust a face mask uh, for to preserve your health. Um, it's sin to trust your governor or your president for your well-being or your family members or anybody else. Um, This amounts to, at least in the moment, a repudiation of God as king when we do this. When we look to, when we trust in something other than him to provide for us in our times of need. 
And God, through Samuel, is essentially accusing Israel on this occasion of spiritual high treason. So Samuel finally convicts the people uh, of their sin. He knew how exceedingly displeased and grieved God was by his people's uh, disloyalty and blatant refusal to put their trust in him. Samuel also knew how callous God's people had become toward him, that is, toward God, and how blinded they had become to the heinousness of their own idolatry uh, of men. And as God's prophet, uh, he also knew of God's desire to show Israel uh, the extent of his displeasure at their uh, heart rebellion against him. And so Samuel calls upon God to give them a sign of his displeasure. Verse uh, 17 of our text is that uh, request on the part of Samuel. Uh, is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. In other words, like the nations, even though that's only implied there, that last phrase. So he asks for uh, this sign. The wheat harvest in Israel occurred in May or June, uh, but this time of year was an especially dry period of time. Uh, Israel never had an overabundance of rain at any time of the year, but especially at this time of the year, it was drier than dust. And so it was extremely unusual for there to be any rain at all, let alone a major thunderstorm. Um, which is why there would have been no doubt that it was a sign from God when it was given, as the text indicated, that it was. Uh, the thunderstorm was designed to drive home God's, uh, drive home the evil of what they had done, what they had requested, and the motives for that request, and to um, restore their reverence for God and their um, fear of sinning against Him again in a like fashion. And God recorded this incident for um, for others uh, for us, some other reasons I think as well. In addition to what I've listed, um, and that is, of course, it's recorded for our sakes. It's recorded for us to do something in our hearts. What might that be? First of all, uh, to remind us of God's hatred of uh, heart idolatry looking to other sources uh, as our God, if you will, in the moment, to uh, trusting other things that we shouldn't be trusting in uh, for our well-being, for our futures, for our contentment, for a sense of peace, rather than the Lord himself. This text is also designed, I think, to remind us of our own capacity for treason against God, that uh, that same... um, uh, tendency or inclinations is within our hearts. Remember, this is the Old Testament church that was doing this. Now, it's the visible church, not the invisible church, although the those that were true believers who were part of the invisible church back in this day uh, probably uh, perhaps had some uh, uh, treasonous tendencies too in their hearts, um, uh, as well as the unbelieving Israelites of that day. But the point is, it's something to which we are all prone 
uh, left to our own devices. And this text should remind us of that. Uh, Thirdly, it should convict us of how evil dependence upon our own human resources is and lack of dependence upon God is in his sight. It's evil in his sight when we do this. When we rely on our own uh, uh, cunning, our own uh, wise planning, uh, or somebody else's uh, to rescue us uh, or bring us through some situation that we face. And then finally, this text undoubtedly is designed to motivate us to repent of our lack of dependence upon the Lord for uh, deliverance if we have indeed um, been depending on something other than him in some area of our lives. So, Samuel here, acting as God's representative, prosecutes God's case against Israel, but he also, praise the Lord, acts as Israel's representative, pleading God's, Israel's case before God. Uh, and that's briefly, and it is brief, uh, the second point of this sermon and of this text. Israel, uh, Samuel acts as Israel's defense attorney. Not just as God's prosecuting attorney, but Israel's defense attorney. The people uh, are so terrified by what they had uh, uh, just seen, that is this uh, violent thunderstorm that had come in uh, undoubtedly exceedingly quickly, which was, uh, which was the miraculous element uh, in addition to the volume of the rain and, that came that uh, stunned the people into realizing, wow, God is angry at us. So they're terrified by what they see. And convinced that God is about to destroy them, as we read in verses 18 and 19. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king." They plead with Samuel to intercede for them, as we just read, uh, before God, and uh, they beg him to ask God to forgive them, in effect, for wanting a king like the pagan nations uh, in whom they could put their trust. So they're asking Samuel to plead their case before God. To be an advocate, if you will, their advocate before the divine judge before whom they are, have been on trial and whose displeasure uh, they have just witnessed in the violent thunderstorm. And Samuel agrees to do that, to plead their case in prayer as their representative before the Lord. And he does this in verses, uh, speaks of this in verses 20 through 22. Uh, and Samuel says to the people, do not fear, you have committed all this evil. So he doesn't whitewash uh, what they had done at all. You've committed all this even, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And you must not turn aside, for then you would go after futile things which cannot profit, uh, del- profit or deliver because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. And then Paul uh, Uh, He says here, uh, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. In other words, I am going to pray for you. I am going to beseech the Lord to protect you, to not kill you as you deserve to be killed uh, for your your treasonous uh, behavior. Um, And so there he, he indicates, I will fulfill that role as you have requested before God. And he uh, uh, obviously does so. In the process of doing so, Samuel reminds them of three things. 
uh, as, uh, as as in process of saying, I'm going to I'm going to fill in for you. I'm going to advocate for you before the Lord. Uh, he does three things, which I've just uh, read in verse 22. Um, he indicates that they, first of all, he, he's teaching them this through his words to them. He indicates that they, that is Israel, uh, as a whole, belong to God. Uh, on account of the covenant that he made with them at Sinai. We too belong to God. The visible church is in covenant with God through Jesus, the, the mediator. Uh, there are There is wheat and chaff in the visible church, but the visible church is uh, outwardly and legally in covenant with God uh, in the new covenant administration uh, today. Uh, the invisible church is vitally and uh, 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 spiritually in covenant with God through Jesus. Uh, and so we are all in covenant with the, the Lord, uh, as the people of Samuel's day were, some truly, some just legally. Secondly, Samuel also reminds them of the promise that God had made to them in the past. Again, this is found in verse, uh, alluded to in verse 22, namely that God would not leave them or forsake them. As we read in Deuteronomy 31, 6, and that promise is also made to us. God will not leave us, uh, because He is our covenant Lord, in spite of, uh, being worthy of being left, if you will. And Samuel also reminds Israel of why God would never abandon them, that is, on account of His great name by which he committed himself to them at Sinai. And of course, God has committed himself to us also through the new covenant, and thus he will not abandon us in our time of need. But I believe that Samuel is also doing something else here uh, in verse uh, 22 uh, and and following. And that is, he uh, is putting a bug I think, in God's ear. He's putting a bug in God's ear. What do I mean by that? Well, he's in effect reminding God, as well as the people, but he's reminding God of promises that God had sworn by his own great name to uh, Abraham's descendant, Abraham and his descendants that he would keep. What are those promises to which I'm referring? One of them is found in Genesis 22, verses 15 and 18. I'll just read it to you quickly here. Uh, this is uh, after the uh, offering up of Isaac, or uh, Abraham's attempt to offer up Isaac. Um, and we read there, uh, and starting in verse 15, after the angel of the Lord speaks to him, Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, notice the angel of the Lord is the Lord, It's very evident from what we're reading here. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed, your descendants, uh, that's both plural and singular, as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice, you Abraham. And then another passage, and I won't take time to read this for the sake of it. 
uh, the time. But Leviticus chapter 26, verses 40 to 45, similarly uh, recounts promises. Um, actually, I want to be careful that I... I will read that. Leviticus 26, verses 40 to 45. This is uh, another promise that I think Samuel may be alluding to, uh, if you will, putting a bug in God's ear. Uh, starting in verse 40, If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, this is Leviticus 26, 40 and following, and also in their acting with hostility against me, the Lord speaking, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humble so that they then make amends for their iniquities, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. For the land shall be abandoned by them and shall make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, shall be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, speaking of the uh, distant future, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord, their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So Samuel is reminding, I think, I suspect, the Lord, Lord, you said these things. Essentially remind, and you did this in your great name, you made these promises. Essentially reminding God of his reputation, uh, that his reputation among the nations would suffer if he were to abandon his covenant people now. In fact, we find uh, regular examples uh, of God's people reminding God of commitments that he has made to them in the past. I won't uh, cite any of those examples right now. But this is something that you can do in your prayers to the Lord. The Lord has made certain promises to you and me uh, regarding deliverance. I'll give you just one of them. And that's in Samuel, excuse me, not Samuel, Psalm, both begin with an S sound, Psalm 33, verses 18 and 19, where we read this promise, and this is a promise that you could uh, share with the Lord if you are in need of his help. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his loving kindness or his covenant loyalty or love, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Now, I'm not reading that to suggest we're going to be in famine in in six months' time. Uh, I guess it could happen. But the point is, deliverance uh, is needed, and this is a prayer that's in the plural. It's not just uh, uh, applied to uh, David, who is probably its author, Uh, But it applies more broadly to God's people, and thus we can claim this uh, as applying to us ourselves and remind the Lord that he has said this to us uh, through his scriptures. So uh, we can do this by way of application. So, back to the text. After reminding the Israelites and God of 
what he has just reminded them of, Samuel agrees to plead with God in prayer on Israel's behalf, as I pointed out a little while ago. Uh, and that's found in verse 23, which I read to you. Uh, not to do so, Samuel says, would be a grave sin. To not intercede, to not advocate on your behalf, as God has appointed me to be your advocate, to be your uh, um, uh, attorney, defense attorney, if you will, and mediator. And uh, you can be sure that uh, when God did finally go to prayer on Israel's behalf, um, that God heard. And Israel did not on that occasion ask God to acquit Israel on the basis of their innocence. We know they weren't innocent, but uh, to acquit them rather uh, on the basis of his covenant promises or to at least uh, stay his hand of judgment uh, because of his covenant. And with respect to that, the covenant is only viable and only um, applicable because of what the covenant mediator has done. Without the covenant mediator, there is no covenant. And the covenant mediator on this occasion, proximately, was who? Samuel. In the latter half of this passage that we just looked at, verse 23. He is the covenant mediator in a, uh, in a, uh, with a small m. But of course, like Moses, like other uh, Old Testament figures, he is pointing to someone else. And that is the true covenant mediator, the true um, Lamb of God, whose sacrifice of himself truly accomplished the forgiveness of and the turning away of God's wrath towards God's uh, elect. And Samuel is just playing the role here of a temporary advocate, pointing to the greater advocate of God's people, the one who entered into the veil uh, in the heavenly sanctuary 2,000 years ago with his blood on your behalf and mine, who actually accomplished our pardon, who actually turned away God's, not just his temporal wrath, but his, uh, his uh, spiritual wrath as well, uh, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father and ever lives to make intercession uh, on our behalf before him. That is who the text is ultimately about, is Jesus. And this text points us to him. We are all Israelites. Uh, and not saying that in a good sense uh, right at the moment. We are all people who have been faithless. We are all people who have, have been idolatrous. We are all people who have failed to trust God at different times in our Christian life. Uh, and we are all um, deserving of God's um, wrath in the storm, if you will. And yet, as we look to and uh, trust in Jesus and his intercession on our behalf, we are made whole. And God preserves us and he delivers us from ourselves and our own sins and also from other uh, uh, things from which we need deliverance as well until he brings us safely home to himself. Look to Jesus. If you're a believer, look to him uh, always. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you need to because he's the only mediator who will stay God's wrath, which you and I, all of us, deserve. Uh, but if you are trusting in Christ, what the, he received the wrath for all those people who would 
the wrath of God for all those people who would trust in him um, when he was hanging on Calvary's tree. And so if you trust in him to save you, uh, this will be as close to hell as you'll ever get, this world that we live in now. And you will go to heaven as well, but only if you have Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these this text. We thank you for the um, promises that are alluded to in these texts that apply to us. We thank you for the uh, that Christ is in the Old Testament uh, in the form of these types and shadows of whom uh, Samuel is one. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, we are heaven-bound and that nothing can change that if we are trusting in him. Lord, this world is full of troubles. Uh, this life is full of troubles. Uh, this is a troubling time in our world and for uh, many of us. But we thank you, Lord, that you... Uh, uh, we can look to you as our deliverer and that you will sooner or later deliver us from all of our woes. And we can trust you and we need to trust you. Would you please help us to do that, Lord? Uh, and we thank you again for this passage and its implications for our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May God give us the grace to not be like the people of old were Um, and turn away from the Lord. And by his grace, we won't. Praise the Lord. Join with me now uh, in the benediction of the Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.